0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolpathanchel. Puerto Rico has been in U.S. territory for nearly 119 years following the Spanish-American War. Today, Where We Live, we explore calls for statehood by Puerto Rico's newest governor, Ricardo Rosselló.
2: We don't have full representation. We can't vote for our president or our vice president. These are clear violations of our civil and human rights.
0: That was Roselló in 2015. He and supporters of statehood say this could help the island, which has been plagued by long-time financial crisis. Coming up, we'll check in with a national AP reporter who's based in Puerto Rico about the latest campaign for statehood. And later in the hour, we'll get historical perspective on this question and hear from Puerto Ricans living in Connecticut. And we want to hear from you, too. Do you think Puerto Rico should become the country's 51st state? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at wherewelive. But first, today, the nation waits for the next big announcement from President Donald Trump. Tonight at 8, Mr. Trump is expected to name his nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Many have been waiting to hear who his pick will be, given that it's been almost one year since the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. As we know, Congress failed to vote on President Obama's pick, Merrick Garland. So who's on President Trump's shortlist? For more, we're joined now by Reuters White House correspondent, Ayesha Roscoe. Ayesha, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. So we're hearing that President Trump was originally expected to make his uh, announcement on his pick on Thursday. Any idea why it was moved up to tonight?
3: Uh, There's some speculation that maybe he wanted to uh, move this up to kind of change the subject um, from his order on uh, that halted some, Uh, immigrants from certain uh, Muslim uh, majority countries um, and kind of the fallout from that. Uh, So there's some speculation that maybe this is a good way to kind of change the subject to something that will rally Republicans.
0: So who are his top candidates? Well, so
3: there are three uh conservative appellate court judges who were um all picked uh, who were all uh picked by President George W. Bush. So you have Neil Gorsuch, uh Thomas Hardiman and William Pryor. Um they're all known for their conservative bona fides and they're all pretty young, which is important when you're uh trying to put someone on the Supreme Court and you have a lifetime appointment.
0: So as of this morning, I'm seeing a lot of reports that um, a lot of speculation that's going to be between Judge Gorsuch or Judge Hardiman. What can you tell us specifically about these two men?
3: Uh, neil gorsuch uh he he's known for uh upholding uh religious rights in an uh in an obamacare case so that's something that's gonna be very near and dear to conservatives um and so so he's uh definitely uh in top in the running and he's only forty nine uh thomas Hardiman is known for uh, uh Ruling in cases in favor of gun rights, so that's also a huge, uh, a hugely important issue for conservatives.
0: I understand that um, Judge Gorsuch is uh, considered a blue blood, an um, Ivy Leaguer, while uh, Judge Hardiman is someone um, that he'd be the first, if if uh, chosen, he'd be the first justice from outside the Ivy League.
3: Well, you know, and that might have some appeal for uh for Trump who considers for President Trump who considers himself an outsider. Um and, and you know, he wants to kind of push back against the elite. So that may have some appeal for him.
0: And we were talking about um, how these judges have uh, ruled or, you know, what their um, opinions are of certain hot-button issues. Um, What are some of the things that you think people are going to be watching um, in terms of what they may be ruling on in the future? Could it be abortion or uh, looking at um, rights for transgender individuals?
3: Yeah, those are the things that everyone is going to be looking at. I, I mean, if you're looking at conservatives. Um, you know, Trump, uh, President Trump has said that he wants to have um, he's that the evangelicals are going to be very pleased with this pick, and so a big thing that they're going to be looking at is abortion rights. They're gonna, uh, not abortion rights, but against pro being pro life mm-hmm. and and uh, what they can do about uh, restricting abortion. So I think so that's something that I know conservatives are going to be looking at. Uh, whoever's whoever's chosen will be able to uh, have a, could have a big impact on gun rights, on transgender issues. All these things could come before uh, the Supreme Court.
0: I'm speaking with Ayesha Roscoe, White House correspondent for Reuters. Tonight, President Trump is expected at 8 o'clock tonight, actually, is expected to announce his pick uh, as his nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, this person would fill the vacancy almost a year uh, when uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia passed away on February 13th of last year. Let's talk about the process, Aisha. So we know that uh, Merrick Garland was President Obama's pick, and uh, Senate Republicans uh, refused to vote on uh, Judge Garland. So, what's in what's in store for uh, um, the future in terms of once there's, the pick has been announced? What's going to be happening in the Senate? I,
3: I mean, the, the Republicans are going to have a fight on their hands. I mean, they they took this kind of unusual gamble where they wouldn't even consider Merrick Garland for a whole year um uh trying to see you know if they would end up with a Republican president and they did so the gamble paid off but um now you have democrats who are going to try to gum up the process as much as possible um you already have democrats in the senate who are saying that they are going to filibuster um so they're going to try to block the nominee any way they can um they likely will not be successful um because republicans have said that they they would be willing to use the so-called nuclear option so that they uh which would eliminate the filibuster for the supreme court nominee but the democrats can definitely slow down the process
0: and we we know um, through this uh, campaign year, um, and we've been hearing a lot more um, from voters. is people are just really disgusted with the process in Washington. But yet again, we're hearing that uh, the mechanics of Congress will be used um, to possibly block this uh, nominee, and then we hear Republicans may use that nuclear option. I mean, are people? I mean, I'm just trying to get the sense of are people in the Beltway still are they aware or paying attention that you know citizens in this country are tired of the process and, and are tired of, of the gridlock.
3: I think that um I think that uh, politicians are aware that that people are, are um uh, upset about the gridlock but i think they're being kind of pulled in different directions so you have conservatives who obviously want uh the um trump's pick to go through but then you have uh you know democrats who are going to be pushed by their constituents to do everything they can um to try to push against this nominee um so i think that they may be getting different um they're kind of being pulled in different directions
0: we do have a caller calling with a question. Peter's calling from Stanford. Peter, we just have a couple of minutes. What's your question for Aisha Roscoe?
4: Okay, I have um, two questions. Um, the first is that now the uh, Senate, I think, has a majority of Republicans, uh, and there is, uh, uh, they can't really, the Democrats can't uh, filibuster or block because there was uh, a move made a few years ago. To end uh, to, to uh, stop that rule and practice that's one. And the other uh, question I have is about the executive orders that Trump uh, put out uh, about this travel ban about uh, uh, people from certain different countries and other, other executive orders that Trump has uh, made. Well I, I imagine that that question will be um, I'm sure that different uh, because of current events there's different types of questions that the uh, Senate is going to ask. Uh, because Trump has uh, so many uh, uh, unique tra- uh, executive orders that he's put out.
0: Thank you, Peter, for those questions. Ayesha, do you want to tackle that first? He's questioning whether the filibuster would even be uh, uh, an effective way, and then you know, the question of you know, if this uh, nominee um, gets a hearing, will he be questioned on this, um, this travel ban, this executive order signed on Friday?
3: So, yes, yeah, so uh, so I believe the Democrats, when uh, they were in, in power, they did make a move uh, in the Senate uh, to use the nuclear option and get rid of the filibuster. But I think it was for appellate court ju- judges, if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't for Supreme Court nominees. So they haven't taken – so the Senate hasn't taken that step yet. But the idea is that the Republicans can – right now Republicans hold a 52 to 48 majority in the Senate. So the idea is that they would use the nuclear option for now a Supreme Court nominee, and that would get rid of the filibuster. But first, that that would have to happen first. So first, Democrats can use the filibuster because they can still use it for Supreme Court nominees at this point.
0: And then his second question about the constitutionality of this executive order
3: Oh, I think that, the, I mean, uh, the way these first two weeks have played out and these executive orders have come out from President Trump, you're, you're definitely going to have a lot of questioning about that um, from Democrats and, and maybe even from some Republicans to see whoever his nominee is, to see what their position is on that. So I think that will uh, likely play prominently in these uh, confirmation hearings.
0: I've been speaking to Ayesha Roscoe, White House correspondent for Reuters. Before we let you go, Aisha, you know, a lot of people are still trying to uh, figure out how to keep up with this new administration, with all of the, the news that's coming out of just uh, the last two weeks. What, it's like, what is it like covering the new administration from the White House?
3: Uh, it's, it's very busy. So it's it's not a dull moment. The days go by fast. You You don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but that's good. It keeps us on our toes. But yeah, it's very busy. And if people, uh, you know, watching the news, if their heads are spinning, you can only imagine uh, how <laughs> how it is when we're covering it. It's a lot, but it's it's good and it's important things to cover. And it, and it definitely keeps us busy and keeps us on our toes.
0: Ayesha Roscoe, again, White House correspondent for Reuters. She told us about uh, some men that may be on the list uh, tonight uh, when President Trump is expected to announce his pick to be the nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, We were were hearing reports that there's uh, two men, Judge Gorsuch and Judge Hardiman. And we'll wait tonight at eight when he's expected to announce his pick. Ayesha, thanks so much again for speaking with us. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we ponder the question, should Puerto Rico become the nation's 51st state? We'll be joined by experts to give us background on why this question has come up again. And we're going to hear from local Puerto Ricans about whether statehood is a good idea for the island. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Puerto Rico has a new governor. Ricardo Roselló, and he's renewing a call for the island nation, to, uh, island, the U.S. territory, to become our country's 51st state. But that doesn't mean all Puerto Ricans want statehood to happen. To help us understand this complicated issue, we're joined in studio by Charles Venator Santiago. He's assistant professor with a joint appointment to UConn's Department of Political Science and El Instituto program. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank
2: you for having me.
0: Now, before we um, bring you into the conversation, I wanted to also let our listeners know. On the phone with us now is Donica Coto. She's a a Caribbean-based reporter and editor for the Associated Press. Donica, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So uh, give us an idea. Who is Ricardo Rosselló?
1: Yes, well, he's actually the son of a very popular former governor, Pedro Rosselló, and he's 37 years old. He has no prior political experience. Um, He's a scientist, graduated from MIT, and um, one of his main uh, campaign promises was to push for statehood for Puerto Rico.
0: And so now um, his son is in office uh, just uh, just uh, sworn in, was it late last month or early this year?
1: Correct. It was January 2nd.
0: And what do people, when they see Rosello, what is it about him that made people say, you know, this is who we want as our governor?
1: I think in part a lot of the older voters, at least, were reminded of Pedro Rosello who was a mm-hmm. very popular governor. Um, and actually under him, Puerto Rico, under um, Rosello's father, Puerto Rico held its second referendum on status back in 1993. And the promise that, um, you know, Roselló Fund would pursue statehood, I think resonated with a lot of people, given, you know, that Puerto Rico's on a decade long economic crisis. A lot of people have been hit with new taxes. Um, About half a million Puerto Ricans have left the island for the U.S. mainland in the last decade. So people, you know, are seeking some kind of change, and many believe that statehood would help ease the economic crisis here.
0: I wanted to bring in the conversation uh, Charles Ventor Santiago again. Um, he's with UConn's Department of Political Science. Charles, tell us a little bit about the, the context of the question of statehood. And, and we know now that there's a governor who's pushing this. He campaigned uh, on this idea. Um, why is this something that is on the minds of Puerto Ricans on the island?
2: I, I think it's a question of hope in some ways or the hope that State would bring more resources to the island than are readily available. Um, Puerto Rico has been an unincorporated territory for the past 118 years, and there have been four plebiscites or efforts to change that territorial status, unsuccessful. And they've all been sort of locally driven by local administrations. They've never, there's never been a congressionally sanctioned plebiscite, even though there have been upwards of 100 bills Petitioning for plebiscites in the island.
0: And in 2012, there was a referendum. It was contested. Tell us about that.
2: So, the plebiscite of, so because all plebiscites in Puerto Rico have been done under local law, uh, local electoral law applies to Puerto Rico. And under local electoral law, uh, electors can cast blank ballots or protest ballots. So, the 2012 referendum was designed to exclude the third option, namely the Commonwealth option. Uh, and it had a two-part question. The first question asked whether there would be a change in the population, and the second part gave a list of uh, options that excluded the popular Democratic Party, which is the sort of largest popular uh, political party in the island. In in doing that, uh, what they did is they opened the door for a lot of protests. So about 54, after you adjust for all the protests in the island in the electoral uh, process, about 54% asked for an actual change, or rather 52% asked for an actual change in the island status, and 45% of the island uh, voters asked for statehood. Now, the way that w- this was reported in the, Uni- in the mainland mm-hmm. United States was that upwards of 61% of the population had actually voted for statehood. So that created this sort of myth that there was a majority in the island supporting statehood.
0: Now I'll go back to Donica. So you mentioned that there are, are many Puerto Ricans that have left the island that are living um, in the mainland uh, in, uh, on, you know, in Florida. We know that in Connecticut we've got a large Puerto Rican population. You know, what is the, the sense from uh, Puerto Ricans living on the mainland about this, this, this question?
1: Well, I think it's um, divided. I mean, a lot of Puerto Ricans who have left have found jobs Um, and have been able to, you know, live more uh, affordable lives, uh, given the increase in taxes here. Um, So overall, I think the reports that are, you know, getting back to families here in Puerto Rico are, you know, there's still jobs in some areas, you know, there have been reports that jobs have been dwindling. That is not what they think um, they're going to find. And a very small uh, number of Puerto Ricans have come back. But I think overall the um the message that Puerto Rico here on the island are receiving is positive, you know, that there's more employment, um, they're able to uh, afford more basic things. Um and and I that's just driving a lot of the a lot of the exodus that, you know, keeps increasing every year.
0: Um if uh, Puerto Rico were to get statehood, what would change that would help the, the financial picture, Donica? I
1: think I think the biggest um pitch that Proponents of statehood are, are making is that the island would receive roughly $10 billion in additional in additional federal funds a year, which is a big chunk for an island that is nearly $70 billion um, in public debt. And um, in addition, the island's government agencies, and municipalities, would also um, be able to file for bankruptcy. Currently, they cannot do that. And so, there's always there's been this uh, tug of war with uh, the U.S. government on how best to resolve Puerto Rico's debt the former governor had approved a uh, local law that allowed for bankruptcy that was invalidated. And, um, so, you know, if, if Puerto Rico were to become a state, um, it would be a, a, an easier process, you know, to, to restructure the debt or to file for bankruptcy. Um, the island in addition would receive equal Medicare and Medicaid funding. And many say this would, you know, help ease the decade long economic crisis that has uh, prompted the exodus of uh, thousands of doctors. Um, so in addition, You know, given that roughly half a million Puerto Ricans have left, um, they say that would stop the exodus. You know, Puerto Ricans might stay here if there were economic development, if it were to receive um, equal federal funding. And, you know, obviously they would be able to uh, vote in U.S. presidential elections, which um, is very much a sore point here, given that people say, well, we can send, you know, Puerto Ricans to the military, but we can't vote for the leader who, who makes that decision. And in addition, the uh, representative in Congress currently for Puerto Rico has limited voting powers, and that you know clearly would change with statehood.
0: Today, we're talking about this call um, within uh, Puerto Rico, uh, the new governor Ricardo Rosello, that it's now time for the U.S. to um, recognize uh, Puerto Ricans as and become a state, the 51st state. What do you think about that question? You can join the conversation 860-275-7266. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Again, we know there are many Puerto Ricans that live here in Connecticut. We're interested um, in your perspective. I wanted to go back to Charles. Um, you know, Donica was talking about this idea that there's um, there's really no power um, because they're U.S. territory, that they don't have representation, um, that they don't have voting um, rights uh, within Congress. Spell, spell that out for us. As a U.S. territory, what the what the framework is.
2: So remember, the United States is not a democracy. Citizens don't vote. Uh, they can't even vote in a presidential election. They vote to select uh, an electoral—not even to select, to elect an electoral college that then selects the president. So it, so starting from that point, any territory, with the exception of Washington, D.C., doesn't have access to the electoral college. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of the resident—I'm commi- and, and I'm sorry, before I move. So in the context of Puerto Rico, last, the last primaries, presidential primaries, I think there were something like 40,000 voters that were cast in the presidential primaries. So even voting for the presidency in Puerto Rico is not a big issue if you look at it from a proportional point of view. If you have upwards of a million voters, or almost two million voters, and only 40,000 participate in primaries, uh, there's a big disjoint there. Uh, in terms of the resident commissioner, that is a position that is similar to what's called a delegate in all territories, all 37 territories that became the 50 states after the founding had delegates uh, initially. In the case of Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican government asked for a resident commissioner that depending on the rules of the House, could get could vote in committee or could vote in the House. It depends; It's all up to the House. And the House has historically chosen not to give the resident commissioner voting powers in the floor. Sometimes it gives them voting powers in the House, or her in this case, uh, the, with the new resident commissioner.
0: It's just interesting when you think about, as a U.S. territory, so Puerto Ricans living on the island, when they come here, they can vote for president. But they don't are able to do that. I mean it's just a. it's I mean there's something you know, you hand it's like the the idea that after the Spanish American War, um you go from one colonial master to another.
2: Well Yeah, no, and there have been several efforts to grant the presidential vote in Puerto Rico, and there's actually litigation going on right now in the Gartua case. And under certain laws it is possible to give the right to vote to Puerto Ricans in the island, particularly the uniform overseas uh, Bo- Military Overseas Voting Rights Act. And American Samoans, for example, can vote in presidential elections mm. uh, as residents of former residents of states. Uh, Washington, D.C., is not a state and by constitutional amendment was granted the right to vote. Uh, but again, I mean, p- the statehood movement in Puerto Rico has been a minor movement in the island. It's garnered roughly 46, percent of the vote historically. <laughs>
0: And, Donica, and I wanted to turn back to you. So, uh, again, we know that the governor is uh, pushing for statehood. What is the process now? So, within the Puerto Rico Senate, there is a bill that has been um, proposed or come forth for a vote. Is that vote happening soon?
1: Yes, it is. Actually, they're moving pretty fast on this. Um, so, Puerto Rico Senate approved the bill, uh, calling for a non-binding referendum late Thursday. And, actually, today, this afternoon, the House will start debating it. And so... The legislators, which are the House, which is controlled by the governor's party, is expected to approve that bill soon. Um, obviously, Rosellos is expected to sign it. And so, if it is approved, the referendum would be held on Sunday, June 11th. And, um, you know, as you stated, they would, they would give voters two choices um, either statehood or whether they want to become what they call a separate sovereignty from the United States. So, if the separate, separate sovereignty wins, they would hold another referendum on October 8th. And then voters in that referendum would be asked to choose between free association and independence. And at the same time, uh, legislators say they're considering another bill because Rosa Joe, one of his uh, campaign promises as well was to draft a state constitution and um, hold elections to choose two senators and five representatives to Congress and then send them to Washington, D.C. to demand statehood. Um, You know, this was a a strategy used by Tennessee uh, to join back in the 18th century. And so legislators here expect to vote on a bill soon, um, authorizing that action as well.
0: And you mentioned that there'll be, um, if the referendum moves forward, they're asked whether to choose for independence or statehood. What about those who want to remain as this Commonwealth? Would they just not show up to vote?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. Um, Obviously, members of the... Partido Popular Democrático, which is one of the two main parties on the island, it's a party that supports the status quo, and there's been talk, obviously, of uh, changing uh, the Commonwealth's uh, relationship with the U.S. Um, there's been uh, talk about calling it an, an enhanced Commonwealth, you know. But, um, obviously, they're, um, they're very upset about the proposal. Um, they have promised to go uh, to federal courts and to ask a judge to invalidate Uh, the proposed referendum because of that reason because they say you know not everybody's choice is included on there so they're saying well there needs to be a choice for you know an enhanced commonwealth as well as possibly an option of none of the above um so that remains to be seen you know whether they'll go to court whether, whether they'll be successful um but part of the argument is that the party um last year began debating um the commonwealth status as a result of uh, several actions taken one of them being that the federal control board was created by congress last year to so oversee Puerto Rico's finances so many people were left wondering that basically the commonwealth status you know was uh, kind of dead upon arrival because the US government has intervened as a result of the economic crisis and so you know, support some people within that party say, well, it's time to, you know, to to submit um, a new proposal that would include, you know, the concept of a commonwealth, but with some changes.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. That's Donica Cotto, Caribbean-based reporter and editor for the Associated Press. Today, we're talking about this question of should Puerto Rico get statehood and what uh, people on the island think versus the mainland. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a a couple of calls now. Carlos is calling from Meriden. Carlos, you're on the show.
4: Yes, ma'am.
5: Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I would just like to point out a few things. Um, I'm a veteran of the Iraq War. I'm still in the Army. I joined out of Puerto Rico in the National Guard. And the, one of the reasons why I joined is because um, there's, there's basically no work here. What work you can get is only you get paid like 200 a week. Plus on top of that is um,
4: the heroin
5: epidemic, and crack epidemic. That's basically been going on since the 1980s. I don't think that if Puerto Rico doesn't fix that problem first,
4: we won't be able to become a state. Um, that's it. That's all I
0: have to say. Thank you, Carlos, for your uh, call. Donica, I'll go back to you. So he's talking about just low wages and a lot of uh, problems uh, within the society on the, on the island that's on the mines. And, and he's saying that that needs to be fixed first before statehood is considered. Um, what's the perspective? From, because you are, a report, you are a reporter down there. What are you hearing from people? Well, that's
1: a huge concern here. Um, actually, the governor recently passed a uh, labor reform law, and um, part of this um, makes changes. It applies to the private sector only, but um, it does make some changes that, that um, you know proponents of this law say will sort of um, will attract more investors, will stimulate the economy. Um, you know, the governor real recognizes when you when you approve this law that the island has lost some 300,000 jobs. In recent years um, and obviously it's a huge reason for why uh, Puerto Ricans are going to the US mainland um, and a lot of changes you know remain to be seen because the federal control board um, you know will be implementing some changes they it has called for this labor reform law but it says that the governor needs to go further and I think one of the um, proposed changes that has really has worried people is um, lowering Uh, the minimum wage for first-time workers, like people who are, I believe, younger than 20, um, and if they're the first time at that job, they would receive a lower wage. Um, So there's a lot of debate as to, you know, whether some of these measures would further depress the economy than, um, you know, stimulate it.
0: I want to take another call. David's calling from Meriden. David, you're on the show.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: And what's your take on on statehood?
5: I definitely support the um, statehood for Puerto Rico. Definitely it is... uh, the system, the system in place right now is basically is disenfranchising so large population of Americans, and, and we are definitely Americans in all intent purposes. I mean, um, you know, for instance, my, my father is a is a military um, retiree, and he was drafted, um, living in the island. And and you know, if we're good enough to to be, to be drafted and, and go to war, and and we are, you know, Americans in all you in know intent purposes. The only thing is. We are definitely uh, disenfranchised. We, we can't vote for per president. I'm not going to all the list, but um, basically, the economic, you know, in this world economy, you know, it's a, it's a, world, it's a, it's a global economy, a, a global, um, you know, uh, you know, a, a place, a country um, that support America, um, you know, uh, the indication of of everybody, you know, a large population. I have. You know, looking for a better life, moving to the states—that um, tells you right there that, that you know, looking, all we we're looking is for for better, a better life. Um, and you know, not having the the the, the representation in, in Congress—we have a non-voting representation. We pretty much have to beg for for you know funding and, and things like that. All all other Americans have the right by becoming a state is is definitely unfair and and and. Um, you know, the, the, the population in Puerto Rico and, and the economy, um, you know, is not gonna get any better in this wall economy if it is not part um or you know, fully part of the of the union just like any other states and and you know, the you know, the it's just heartbreaking to, to see the, the you know, the, the inequality. David, we live in the island, you know.
0: David, I I wanted to ask you, and I'm seeing that, you know, in the notes here that you moved to um, this part of the the country in 1989. If statehood were to happen, you know, tell me about how your relationship would change with Puerto Rico. Do you think you'd move back, or I'm just curious what your thoughts are.
5: Well, um, as you pointed out, I moved um, in 89 to come to college, and, you know, my intention was always to go back, but it's so hard to go from— you know, um, from the states and, and living in an economy that the you can actually prosper to go back knowing the hardship you're gonna be facing as an adult. So, you know, um one thing led to another and you end up staying and, and that's and and that's the part that is missing for Puerto Rico not becoming state. You don't have the same opportunities. You don't you know, um I, I exercise my vote, my my right to vote in every single election, local and, and national, um for you know, for president and things like that. And knowing the if I, if Puerto Rico becomes a state and have the same representation, and actually, due to the population, we'll have a large number of representatives in, in the House and in, 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 in the Senate. Um, all those things will help the economy. And knowing that if I, if I were to go back to to, to Puerto Rico, I mean, I go visit, um, but it's not the same to to live. It's, it's a hard decision to live away from your family, knowing that. You know the jobs aren't there. The unemployment is so high, um, and the system is rigged. In you know to to use a a term that has been you know throughout lately, it's, it's, it's definitely rigged against the the citizens of um, you know American citizens in Puerto Rico just for the location.
0: Thank you, David, uh, for your comments. I'll turn back to Charles Venator Santiago, again, uh, from UConn's Department of Political Science. So we're hearing some interesting um, perspective from uh, Puerto Ricans living here in the state about, you know, the conditions. and the island the fact that there is such high unemployment um, as david mentioned um so i'm just curious uh, when we're, we're talking a lot about process and then we're asking about people's opinions but where is the political will in this country to even if the referendum moves forward if it's approved for it to make it happen because congress here would have to approve it
2: there's none the idea of statehood is a myth that people still cling to and there's none in fact What's interesting about this debate is that historically Puerto Rico has actually been treated like a state for a number of issues. So let me clarify. The idea of an unincorporated territory is a territory that's acquired but it's not meant to become a state. That's what the insular cases say. But it gives Congress the opportunity to cherry pick when it wants to treat Puerto Rico like a state, when it wants to treat it like a sovereign country, and when it wants to treat it like something else. So for Olympic purposes and for federal tax corporate tax purposes, Puerto Rico is a sovereign nation. Uh, in the tax code, uh, but for some federal benefits, Puerto Rico's a state. For social benefits, Puerto Rico is sort of in between. It, it only receives block grants. So they all, the economic argument could be addressed without changing the territorial status of the island under the current law. Now, the question of statehood is really simple. Puerto Ricans in the island and the mainland vote Democrats. And giving Puerto Rico, based on apportionment prop- uh, purposes, given Puerto Rico statehood would mean giving Puerto Rico two senators and f- Four, maybe five representatives because Puerto Rico has a similar population to Connecticut, which is not a very large number. But, you know, one representative counts, uh, especially in the Electoral College, as Wyoming knows. So uh, no Republican in their right mind is going to give Puerto Rico seven votes or rather, I should say, the Democratic Party seven votes. And this has been the case for the past 118 years. And Democrats have never asked for statehood which is the the funny part about it, they could benefit from the statehood of Puerto Rico.
0: I want to go back to uh, Donica Koto before we head to break. Donica. so we know this new governor is getting headlines because he's campaigned on this idea of it's time for statehood for Puerto Rico to become the 51st state um, of our con- country. What are some other initiatives that, you know, he will be held, uh, you know, be, people are going to want to see him improve on um, in Puerto Rico?
1: Well, I think the economy definitely is a big initiative um he's you know he's been or he has said he's been more willing to work with uh, bondholders uh, to help pay off some of the debt. The previous governor you know um obviously made big news when he said that the debt was unpayable and that um it had to be restructured and Roseejo has said well you know as he recently approved a law that says we'll pay the essential services first um essential services being you know health care um security, education, and then, you know, if there's any money left over from that, a portion of that will go toward paying the debt. That, in turn, I think sort of uh, helps boost maybe um, Puerto Rico's credibility a little bit to help it reenter the market so it can, you know, issue more bonds and um, generate more revenue. And at the same time, it helps um, ease um, negotiations with creditors. You know, Puerto Rico has made several multimillion-dollar defaults since last year, Uh, Creditors, you know, in response, have filed um, a lot of lawsuits. There's a stay on litigation right now that was approved by the Federal Control Board and has been extended um, until May. And in addition, I think uh, some of the changes that uh, Rosa Joe has promised, um, we will see outlined in a revised fiscal plan that he has to submit to the Federal Control Board. And basically, this plan explains what Puerto Rico plans to do to help, um, you know, boost the economy, uh, cut costs. You know, all these changes that the Federal Control Board is demanding. Um, so the economy definitely is is the biggest issue here for, for people.
0: I want to thank Donica Koto, Caribbean based reporter and editor for the Associated Press. Donica, thanks again for your time today.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Now, Charles Venator, Santiago, assistant professor with a joint appointment to UConn's Department of Political Science and El Instituto program. He's going to stick around as we continue to talk about this idea of statehood. How can this country, the U.S., help its territory, Puerto Rico, if not statehood? What else needs to be done? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We'll be back after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're pondering the question of whether Puerto Rico will become the nation's 51st state. Connecticut is home to a large Puerto Rican population. What are their thoughts? Joining us in studio now is Adrian Enrique Rodriguez. He's a recent graduate from CCSU. He works for the labor union, uh, CSEA SEIU, and you've been on the show before, but welcome back, Adrian. Thank you. So we understand that you were um, over in Puerto Rico um, during the time that the governor was elected. Tell us what you observed and and what you heard.
6: Uh, Yes, actually, just to correct, it was during the time that he was uh, in his inauguration. and being sworn in, so I was there from January first until January twelfth, and we 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 don't see a lot of the things that are actually happening in Puerto Rico on the mainland here., uh, there's not a lot of news coverage about the real stories over there. And I was listening in earlier, and there's a lot of things that need to be addressed. It's we have to start moving away from the conversation of we want statehood, we want to be a sovereign nation. It has to be more about the issues and looking at how can we fix the issues that are affecting our people in Puerto Rico first and then we can talk about political agendas
0: so we heard that sentiment from some of the callers who exactly. say that their you know unemployment is high wages are low that's why they moved here also you know we hear a lot about the the drug crisis in this country it's also according to one listener a problem in Puerto Rico so these are the things that you want to see addressed first
6: Exactly. I actually had uh, the opportunity recently to move to Puerto Rico. I was going to, I applied for the law school in Puerto Rico. I was accepted. I uh, had the space where I was going to live. I was ready to transfer my uh, my vehicle. Everything was ready. I was just waiting for the employment opportunity. And when I got the, the wage offer, it was $4.25 an hour, which I'm pretty sure listeners are saying that's, that's not possible. The minimum wage in the mainland is, is much higher than that. And so these are the kinds of things that are really bringing people down. And it's laws like these that are not allowing us to progress.
0: So we're getting some tweets from listeners. Uh, uh, Brendan writes, isn't it way more important what Puerto Rico thinks? Um, And you were saying that, you know, some of the issues need to be addressed. But if people voted in this new governor, he campaigned on this idea of time for statehood. He's listening to to the constituents.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's. Something that is very divided within the island. It's something that I saw when I was uh, traveling all around. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the west of the island this, this year. Uh, in March that I was there in 2016, I spent a lot of time in the south and in the east. And so I've gotten a collection of different ideas uh, throughout the island. And I noticed that in the cities, there's not as much support for statehood as there is in rural areas. Uh, and so there's there's that division there.
0: Is it because in the rural areas, you know, they're hit harder by the economic hardships, and they're looking for something to grasp onto for hope that their lives can become become better?
2: I think that may be part of it.
0: Charles, what do you think?
2: I, I agree completely. And the promise of statehood has been as has been articulated after the 2012 website is that once Puerto Rico becomes a state, it would have equal access to the same federal uh, grants that are available to states. And based depending on what estimate you use, that could mean upwards of twenty billion dollars. For people, for people having access to basic social services. And that would not only fix the <laughs> crisis, because right now the gap is somewhere between 7 and $10 billion in terms of the amount of money that the government generates and the amount of debt that is owed on a yearly basis. We really don't know because there's been a lot of funny math and hiding of debt over the past 10 years. Uh, but the argument is that statehood would open the door for, for that possibility because it would – essentially guarantee equal access to grants as opposed to block grants mm-hmm. the problem with that argument of course is that there's nothing stopping the government the democratic party or the republican party from treating u.s. citizens in puerto rico equally mm-hmm. as they would treat them in the united states that's what we expect of democracies
0: i wanted to um bring in another caller uh Wilde-Liz bermudez is, is on the phone uh, she's also a hartford city council member wilde welcome back to the show Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, tell me about your perspective as a Puerto Rican and what do you think about the statehood question?
7: Yeah, so first off, uh, this is a very, obviously, a very timely issue. Um, And especially when we're talking about Connecticut in general, because if we look at all of New England, um, here in Connecticut, we have the highest numbers of Puerto Ricans um, in our, you know, right here in our very own state. And the numbers of Puerto Ricans are increasing every single year, especially last year. Um, I really liked what Adrian had to say in terms of, hey, you know, they were offering me wages of $4.25. My perspective is I really believe that right now, especially with what's happening at the national level and the great uncertainty um, that's occurring, right now would be the perfect time for Puerto Rico to become independent. And when, when I talk about independence, when I, I mention this word of independence, um, I'm specifically thinking about greater economic independence independence for Puerto Rico. The, the issues that have been affecting the people on the island, and, and by the way, I, you know obviously I'm Puerto Rican. I was born in Puerto Rico. My family came to Connecticut. We settled in Hartford. had have been living in Hartford for pretty much the majority of my life, with the exception of four years that I went to Puerto Rico to do my my, uh, master's degree. So I've had the perspective of both living here in the states and also living there. And till this day, having family that continues to live on the island. So when when I talk about independence, again, greater economic independence, um, the bad policies, there's been bad policies and bad politics that have been affecting the people of Puerto Rico who live in Puerto Rico for a very long time. And that can be seen, and some of it was already articulated by the professor and also Sonica, the reporter. So bad policies as in we're not able to vote in Congress, right, mm-hmm. If you, if at all. And so we do have someone who's there um, but has no voice and no, no vote. Uh, we can't vote for the president if you live in Puerto Rico. There's no workers' comp if you live in Puerto Rico. Everything on the island, when I lived there, everything – Over 90% um, of items are imported. And so, as you know from the experience of Hawaii, when things are imported, Mm -hmm. the costs go up. And, of course, that's because of the Jones Act. Um, And yet, we have an island of Puerto Rico that has very fertile and rich soil. Um, At a time when in cities, you know, we're talking about food justice and, and having more urban farmers, a place like Puerto Rico had been farming... For decades, for centuries, and yet farming is not, we can't sell um, what we're able to produce, and, and there's not really an economy to drive agriculture, and it's it's very regressive.
0: Well, Elise, hold on one, hold on one second. I wanted to bring in one more caller, and we'll continue the conversation. Uh, Lenny's calling from stores. Lenny, you're on the show. What do you think?
4: Um, I think um <clears throat> we need a change. Um, I've, I was, I've always been a person that believes a lot, you know, um, the way we are, you know, uh, associated, the you know, so associate, how they call it? Right. But, um, when I moved out of there, um, in 95, I moved because it was very hard for me, you know, when it comes to jobs, minimum wage and all that we do pay. I was uh, researching that says that we paid last year, like 3.3 3 billion in taxes, but we don't have adequate representation of those taxes. So if we were state a state, we'd be, you know, what we pay they would notice it now it's like oh you a lot of people think we don't pay taxes we pay a lot of taxes but we don't have adequate representation mm-hmm. so i don't know i think that at the same time it scares me becoming a state for other reasons our identity you know <clears throat> as puerto ricans you know so much things but um you know i think we need to change and i don't think uh staying the way we are is going to make a change i feel that independent um that we we wouldn't be able to make it i mean we have a lot of agriculture but i don't see like people like going back to that not many people so it's kind of confusing for me but at this point in my life I feel that it, it would be better like to become state because we need a big change
0: so you're pro-statehood what about this idea of independence do you have a uh, confidence that the that Puerto Rico could turn around as an independent nation
4: I don't think so honestly uh, I really don't think so I mean it would be great to think that that could happen like, that would be great but uh, i I don't, I don't think i think it would it will. everything would go up like crime would go up like more like everything we're going through now would go up even more negatively cuz uh the agriculture you know we have so much good land like the lady like the girl was saying before but the thing is our our the people willing to go back and 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 do that do agriculture and do things that we haven't been doing for years i i don't see it happening honestly i don't think we could survive like that
0: well thank uh, you Thank you, Lenny, for your your comments. I wanted to turn back to our in-studio guests uh, before we run out of time, um, Charles Venator Santiago from UConn's Department of Political Science, Adrian Enrique Rodriguez, a recent graduate from CCSU, just returned um, earlier this month from Puerto Rico. He mentioned pride, and that's something we haven't talked about, you know, this sense of pride, this Puerto Rican identity. You know, where does um, the the island move from here? Because we do have a new administration, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, Charles, you mentioned earlier that this idea of statehood, it's not going to happen. So how do we move this conversation forward to help Puerto Ricans on the island?
2: Is, so if you look at the debates over the crisis, the idea of four twenty-five an hour was proposed by the Kruger Report as a way to compare Puerto Rico with Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. So from the outset, the conversation has been around fe- how to prepare Puerto Rico to be a competitive, independent country. There is another model that people are not talking, which is the Ireland model, uh, and that's been proposed by some sectors. The second point of view, uh, is, this is really important the current economic situation in puerto rico doesn't provide a system of government that can sustain the infrastructure in the island so we're receiving something like 17 billion dollars a year from federal subsidies to sustain highways health and so on and so forth so there has to be a model that can address or sustain independence now the question of representation in congress is really tricky because there are five puerto rican representatives who are always advocating for puerto rico Two in New York, one in Florida, one in Chicago, and one in uh, Utah, if I remember correctly. So, so there are, there's a lot, and in, in five, at least five in Connecticut who are very active in, on behalf of Puerto Rico, including Senator Blumenthal and Murphy. Um, so, so the question then becomes what are the options? The government from the Obama administration onwards has said that the Commonwealth status is, is not an option. The enhanced Commonwealth has been dis, dismissed because it would mean changing responsibility from Congress to the State Department. Uh, so we're left with independence and the promise of statehood, at least that's what lobbyists and lawmakers uh, argue. I think independence from the congressional point of view is the most logical argument, uh, but there's no su- su- significant support in the island for independence, the, uh, at least in the electoral arena.
0: Adrian, we have just two minutes. Uh, what do you think needs to happen to help uh, tackle these issues in Puerto Rico?
2: Yes,
6: so I think uh, exactly as the professor was saying, uh, we need to really evaluate what people want to identify, what do they really want to move forward with. Um, it's always been back and forth. It's like one, um, one governor is from one party. Then you have a popular, then you have the PNP. It's always back and forth. You know. So um, part of it is not staying on the same path. You know? And I want to go back to Lenny's comment earlier about identity. That's one of the biggest things that I noticed in Puerto Rico. I mean, there's you go to Puerto Rico and you see three different flags. Uh, you see the flag that's the sky blue, and that's the one that the independents choose to uh, identify themselves with. Then you see the flag that is dark blue. That's the flag that you see um, people for statehood. And now you see this new flag, which is a black flag, which is like the, the younger millennials that they want just solve the issues, please.
0: So uh, we're going to have to stay tuned to see what happens uh, within the island, within our new administration. I want to thank Adrian Enrique Rodriguez, again, a recent grad from CCSU. Thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: Also, Charles Venator Santiago, thanks again for coming in. Also, Wilda Lees Bermudez, who called in. Thank you for your perspective. And to our listeners, we appreciate your calls and your comments. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Special thanks to our intern, WNPR's intern, Ali Oshinsky. I'm Lucy nall Thanks for listening.